Today's conversation is the podcast of the National Association of Evangelicals, hosted by Walter Kim, NAE President. Today's conversation is with John Inazu, the Sally D. Danforth Distinguished Professor of Law and Religion at Washington University in St. Louis. The topic, Surviving and Thriving in Deep Difference. Today's conversation is brought to you by the Wheaton College Graduate School. With more than 20 master's, doctoral, and certificate programs, the Wheaton College Graduate School is preparing servant scholars to engage the world as humanitarian responders, therapists, theologians, biblical scholars, Christian camp leaders, and more. Find out how the Wheaton College Graduate School's flexible or residential programs will inspire, challenge, and equip you at wheaton.edu slash conversation. And now, let's join in. I'm Walter Kim, here with John Anazu. John is the Sally D. Danforth Distinguished Professor of Law and Religion at Washington University in St. Louis. There he teaches criminal law, law and religion, and various First Amendment seminars. His scholarship focuses on the First Amendment freedoms of speech, assembly, and religion. He is also the executive director of the Carver Project, a ministry empowering Christian faculty and students to serve and connect university, church, and society. John is the author of Liberty's Refuge, The Forgotten Freedom of Assembly, and Confident Pluralism, Surviving and Thriving Through Deep Difference. He is co-editor with Tim Keller of Uncommon Ground, Living Faithfully in a World of Difference, coming out this year. His scholarship has influenced my own thinking about how evangelicals ought to engage culture. So delighted to have you with us, John. Walter, it is great to be with you. Thanks for the invitation. Well, let's jump right into it. Over the past couple of decades, we certainly have seen major cultural shifts in American society around a variety of issues, sexuality, gender, religion in the public square, and as a country, we are becoming more politically and socially tribal. It seems that uh, people are getting further and further away from each other in terms of agreement and experience. It's in this particular context that you call Christians to confident pluralism. What do you mean by that? Yeah, thanks. So the, the, the meaning of the title is sort of twofold. The confidence part is a call, and especially when I'm speaking directly to Christians about this, a call and a a reminder that you have confidence in your beliefs. You know the end of the story. You trust in a Savior who is guiding you and guiding the course of humanity and the history of the world. And that is more than enough. And so to be confident in that, regardless of what you encounter. And then the pluralism piece is to acknowledge the reality of the differences around us. And in some ways, we've always had some of these differences. We haven't ever been as unified as we sometimes think when we look back on our own history. Uh, There have been some changes geographically, demographically, and other kinds of changes that perhaps make the intensity feel greater in the current moment, but we've always had the difference. And when you think about the course of Christian history, Christians all over the globe for uh, since the time of Christ have had to figure out what it means to engage in cultural differences. And one of the real gifts of Christianity has been its ability to do so. So to be confident in our beliefs, to recognize the reality of our differences, and then to live out as faithful witnesses. Hmm. So when we talk about pluralism, the term relativism often gets thrown in, and there can be confusion between what is meant by each term. How do you differentiate between pluralism and relativism? 
Yeah, I, sh- I guess I should first start by saying the word pluralism is pretty clunky and a lot of people mm-hmm. just recoil at the term. You know, it's, it's an unfamiliar term and people aren't often used to uh, speaking about it. Uh, but I do think there's an important difference, at least in the way I use the term and the idea of relativism. There are some pluralist thinkers who basically think that all difference is good and all difference is the same. So the difference between our, the ice cream flavors that we like and whether there is a God, those questions are all the same to some pluralists. And, and as a Christian, we just that's not a, a premise that we can accept. And, and so I think of, pl- of pluralism and difference on a couple of different levels. There are differences, and God in some ways creates difference. There, there is difference in the parts of the Trinity. There's difference in the created order. Uh, and so some differences are, are part of celebrating life together, differences in beauty and taste and those sorts of things. But there are lots of differences that are not good. And, and as Christians, we long for the end of some of those differences, for, for truth to prevail, for you know the, the mourning not to be sorrowful and for the persecuted not to be persecuted. And mm-hmm. until those differences arrive, we live in a state where we, we name the reality of differences without embracing all of them. And so I think for Christians engaged in a pluralistic society, it becomes very important to say, yes, some differences are good, some differences are not good. It really matters that we understand why the difference about the differences and then that we embrace the good differences and we are very clear about where we stand on some of the bad ones. Mm -hmm. What are some of the principles that you use to differentiate between those categories, the good versus the bad differences? Right. Yeah. I mean, some of them are, I think some of the most trivial differences are easily in the good category. I mean, when I, when I'm with friends and we cheer for different sports teams or have different tastes and food and those sorts of things. And so I think part of it is almost an intuitive, this, the idea that life is more interesting with some difference. And and then in terms of the, the differences that are, that are the kind that we need to be aware of and we can't just accept as right and good. I think this has to start with a, with a gospel notion of who we are as created human beings, what we understand God's justice in the world to be. And in some ways that's not always going to be translatable outside of a Christian context so that we will encounter people in the world, some of our neighbors and our coworkers who will have very different understandings of what justice requires or what morality is. And, and part of, recognizing what those differences are for Christians in the world means that we are pretty clear about our own beliefs. And that's back to the confidence part. We have to know what we believe and why we believe it so that we can engage across those differences. Okay. So picking up on this confidence piece, as a pastor, I certainly encounter Christians who are confident in their beliefs, but I also see a lot who are questioning or or not sure how to reconcile their Christian understanding of, say, sex, gender, who God is, so forth with with other competing beliefs. What kind of work needs to be done on the confidence side before we can even engage on the pluralism side? Yeah, that's a great question, Walter. And I I think it's it's an urgent and an important question. I think it comes down largely to formation and formative practices as much as formative beliefs. I I spent some time as a, a youth pastor about 10 years ago. And as I got into sort of the state of youth ministry and the youth ministry uh, industry in this country, it really seemed that we have, we have capitulated to a lot of uh, worldly approaches to how you engage with uh, kids and how you shape them and entertain them. And I think Christian formation has to go a lot deeper than that. And it's a reminder that 
we believe these things not just because someone tells us they're right, but because we live into them as a community, we recognize with each new day that they matter and that they mark us as as different people. And sometimes it's costly to do. Now, I also, I think, want to be quick to caution that this doesn't mean we withdraw from the world and go into our own enclaves. I think mm. formation does mean having thick communities and real and honest relationships, but not for the sake of just circling the wagons, for the sake of going out into the world. And so unless we are good at both, unless we are good about the formation that leads to the confidence and also then springboarding that confidence out into the world, we're going to miss one or the other parts of our, our call to be salt and light to those around us. So what gives you confidence that such confidence can develop? Uh, yeah, I think, I mean, well, the gospel for starters, right? We, we, we should, we should and must kind of go back to the confidence that we proclaim. Uh, I think even in the midst of a lot of challenges, and there are many, there are social media challenges, there are challenges just from an age of distraction and challenges of uh, people uprooting and in a more mobile society. Uh, but I, I am confident because at the local level, especially, I do, I do see these kinds of Christian practices at work, not not perfectly ever, but but real people who are working hard to live differently and live counterculturally, and that's where the the confidence emerges. And I think I, I think with the example of Jesus and the disciples, and really a lot of Christians through the ages, we can be comforted by knowing that it doesn't always take a huge crowd of people. You just you, hmm. sometimes you just need a few people, but having a few is a lot different than feeling alone. So hmm. if you can I mean, I've got young children right now, and as I think about even the battle with cell phones, if if I can be in community with some other parents who are also working really hard to figure out how to think about technology with our kids, that's so much easier than just going about it alone with, with our own family or mm-hmm. if, if I'm working toward Sabbath keeping or those sorts of things. If there's a community of people around me to encourage me toward that end, uh, one, there's a, an accountability mechanism, but there's also just uh, an encouragement and a and a reinforcement of confidence by realizing that, oh, you know, there are other people around me that really care about this too and are committed to the same uh, sorts of ends. Yeah, I appreciate that. The, not only the focus on the individual and the individual formation, but the individual within the context of a community life. And it, it's this notion of community and the complexities of community. I want to flesh out a little bit more. You know, we live, as you've described, in a pluralistic society. Is that pluralism itself good for Christianity? Is, is it good for our country? And, and how so? I think the answer to that question starts by naming the fact of pluralism as a descriptive reality in this country. We've always had difference and diversity in this country. At some points, it's been less clear to some people. And uh, the reason for greater clarity that today is we just allow more voices to be heard. But when you have the greater reality of our differences exposed, it also means that it's harder to name consensus. It's harder to define unity and our shared values as a country. So in that sense, the the fact of pluralism is, is a hard thing. It's not necessarily a good thing. But it's also the reality in which we live. And I think for Christians especially, one thing that we can see as an opportunity in the fact of pluralism and difference in this country is it can remind us that we're not 
in control that that the mission the kingdom of god does not depend upon our controlling the levers of power in this country or in society but that we can live and coexist with people who are very different than us maybe even be ruled by some of those people in a political order uh, but that the kingdom of god goes on and that our call is to demonstrate as a faithful witness to jesus regardless of the circumstances in which we find ourselves this is where i find Leslie Newbigin's work so helpful. Newbigin reminds us that we're always, as, as Christians, embedded in different cultural contexts. And part of the challenge of faithfulness is to figure out what is our particular context and what is our responsibility within that context. I think today in the United States, we are in a pluralistic environment where uh, we are going to encounter lots of people and lots of difference. Uh, and that our call to faithfulness starts with recognizing that reality. Hmm. So clearly you, you think about this issue with respect to your academic study, your assessment of where we are as a country, but how did you personally come to this concept of confident pluralism? What's part of your journey toward this? Yeah, you know, I think a big part of it for me was growing up biracial. I'm, I'm half white and half Japanese. And I think recognizing as like even as a kid that I was never quite situated fully in one context or another. And uh, to be honest, that only became more evident to me as I got older. But recognizing uh, that we are embedded in a world of difference. And then part of that heritage for me as well as uh, knowing and learning that my grandparents were interned as Japanese Americans during World War II. And my father was born in the camps. And so in the midst of recognizing difference, also realizing that when the people who hold power don't like difference, bad things can happen and bad things did happen to my own family. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so trying to, trying to toe the line of uh, understanding and learning the law, but also having a healthy distance from the law and the mechanisms of power and to recognize that living in society means both working within the law, but also working within our own civic practices and not really putting our hope or faith in too much of either. Well, you've just brought in a, a lot of different issues, uh, government, law, cultural identity, historical experiences. So if confident pluralism is going to work, what are the roles and responsibilities of various groups, government, social institutions, the church, individual systems and citizens? Yeah, you know, I think the key word in your question there is the word institutions. (laughs) And and that's because at the end of the day, we need people who are habituated into practices of civic friendship. I I talk in Confident Pluralism about the notions of tolerance, humility, and patience. And in the book, I I call them aspirations because quite frankly, uh, that's that's sort of a low bar or low-hanging fruit. But at some point, aspirations have to be habituated into practices where people will people will, will people will almost intuitively default to civic friendship with one another and i think the only way that happens is with healthy institutions embedded across society and that that includes institutions in the church it includes educational institutions it includes governmental institutions i think uh realistically the best possibility for that kind of institution building happens at the local level Mm. where there are face-to-face relationships with people who are invested in each other's lives 
you know, it, it's, it's conceptually possible that you have larger scale institutions, but the ones that are going to bear the burden of this kind of work in habit forming and cultivating virtues are going to have to be at the local level. Mm-hmm. This concept of civic friendship, that's powerful. And yet in friendships, we often find ourselves both having agreement and disagreement. And some of our most important beliefs as Christians can't be reconciled with beliefs that are more broadly held into culture. We're just not going to always be able to agree. Uh, In your book, Confident Pluralism, you describe the importance of inclusion and dissent. Can you draw this out for us? Yeah. So, you know, on the level of friendship, I think it starts by naming the reality of our differences and being clear about those. And then that allows us to find where our common ground actually exists. So we might not always be able to reach agreement on everything, but there are likely going to be some kinds of uh, important issues where we do have common ground. And that begins with naming the reality of our differences. And then around that, in in a broader political or civil frame, we have to have a push toward inclusion and a recognition of dissent. So by that, I mean, let's start talking about inclusion first, that as a civic matter, our country has actually never been that good at including everybody in equal citizenship and equal opportunity. And we can we could think about politically why different political tribes might have different answers to those questions or different policy preferences, but as a baseline recognition that we ought to include the people in our society as much as possible to equal citizenship and opportunities for education and opportunities to um, be integrated members of society. And that that needs to be a goal for all of us. And and we we can and will debate about the policy differences to get there, but we can't lose sight of that goal. The otherwise confident pluralism is not going to work at all. And then the related piece to that is we have to allow people who end up not agreeing with us to be able to dissent from majoritarian or consensus beliefs and practices. And that means we put up with people we don't like, even and maybe especially when we're we're the ones in power. And sometimes, especially given local and geographic differences in this country, sometimes Christians will find themselves in relative power at the local level, and sometimes they'll find themselves disempowered. And regardless of the social reality in which they live, Christians ought to be recognizing and allowing for neighbors and citizens around them to dissent. Hmm. So the issue of the use of power, uh, inclusion, dissent, as a scholar of First Amendment law, how would you assess the current state of affairs in First Amendment law and religious freedom? Yeah, you know, I I think it's kind of a mixed bag, but the first thing that comes to mind following on the previous uh, question you asked me is the the basic recognition that religious freedom and civil liberties more generally are for everyone. And I'm actually amazed and sometimes discouraged when I encounter Christians who don't even understand that basic first premise that that if we're going to be serious about religious freedom, it means religious freedom for Christians, yes, but it also means religious freedom for Muslims and for atheists and other people in the society. And unless we're able to recognize that these rights only work when they're for everyone, we're going to look like self-interested special pleading in the public square, and we're going to rightly lose some of the claims that we make. Uh, so, So it begins by recognizing that religious freedom in the First Amendment is for everyone. And then in terms of where we are today, it's a mixed bag. I think actually that the Supreme Court has done a better job recently of 
recognizing why institutions and especially religious institutions depend upon their leaders and ministers for their own integrity and that their boundaries and institutional boundaries will sometimes conflict with the broader society. And there are some helpful, meaningful protections for those kinds of institutions. And at the same time, I think we're seeing a general decline uh, culturally, but somewhat legally in the recognized value of religious freedom. Some of this ties to some complicated legal doctrine that is currently being sorted out at the Supreme Court. Uh, but others of, uh, other pieces of it, I think, are just a broader cultural trend that's worth paying attention to. Uh, one example here is the relative rise of non-believers in this country. We are, for the first time, seeing a significant demographic of people who don't have any kind of uh, preference or view of transcendence. And so when you think about a concept like the free exercise of religion, that doesn't work or do a lot of good for someone who says, I, I just don't believe in any of that. Uh, and and that, that's a new set of challenges for citizens generally, but for Christians in particular. It, it used to be the case, you know, even 20 or 30 years ago when we talked about religious freedom or religious pluralism, we were talking about what does it mean to have Christians and Jews and Muslims and other people of faith finding common ground. And when we expand the category to include non-believers, we, we lose a lot of the vocabulary and we, we lose a lot of the moral suasion that comes with a shared recognition of, of, a, of God of some kind. And that's a complicated question for religious freedom. It's a complicated question for the establishment of religion and what counts as, a, as an approved or uh, possible prayer in a public setting. That question has one answer when everybody or almost everybody professes some belief in some God and has a much harder answer when there's a significant demographic that does not want the prayer at all. So in light of this complexity, how can evangelicals practically bear a compelling witness to the gospel? You know, I think the one thing is just to start by, you know, being willing to speak for the hope that we have and doing so in a way that reflects hope and confidence and uh, regardless of what legal changes we see, regardless of who has political control, regardless of whether it's relatively harder or easier to uh, be public about our faith, that we're still called to the, serve the same God and we're still called to love neighbor. Um, and I think part of that also is a, a reminder of the context in which we're in. I, I, I do think we see challenges in this country, some cultural and some legal, but you know, as we speak, there are Christians around the globe who are literally being executed and martyred for their faith. And mm. we don't have that here. And, and Christians through the ages have suffered tremendous hardship and suffering for the sake of the gospel. And so I think part of our responsibility in the United States today is, is not to be naive or uh, pretend like there are no challenges to our faith, but also to recognize that we have been given a real opportunity to speak freely about what we believe and that we ought not hold that lightly. Hmm. So when we think about these challenges, you really do exhort it, implore us, invite us to enter into it and not withdraw from it. Describe a little bit of why Christians may be tempted to withdraw and how you would continue to encourage us to actually engage. Well, I mean, I, I mean, I, I see a lot of fear and anxiety among 
some of the Christians I encounter when I when I speak and travel. I think some of that is driven by a sense of perceived loss, a sense that in an earlier era there was more coherence maybe to them or more of a sense that there were Christian baselines that could be assumed. And they're not entirely wrong in that. I mean, and when you look about sort of the number of people today who would just have a, a baseline basic knowledge of what the Bible is or what the gospels are, that's quite different and quite lower today than it was even 40 or 50 years ago. So there is a sense in which some familiar trappings seem less familiar today. Um, but, I, but I think we have to be, we have to encourage and exhort each other to move beyond fear and anxiety. And I think one of the greatest resources for Christians in this country are, are other Christians who've been here, but who have maybe not been in the same uh, cultural and political circles. So in particular, the black church, but also other Christians of color, other ethnic specific Christian groups who have never been fully welcomed into the American experiment, despite the advertisement of the melting pot, it really hasn't quite worked out that way for a lot of non-white Christians. And so what has it meant for for decades, or in, in the case of the black church, for centuries of figuring out how to live in this world without fear, with, with the fullness of hope in the midst of suffering, without the levers of power, and yet still be a vibrant witness to those around them. And I, I think that's the if there's a secret sauce here, it's it's the people who are already around us, who already share our beliefs, uh, but who, especially in evangelical circles, who have have not been heard for quite some time. So, an upcoming evangelicals magazine is going to center on how we engage across difference, and that magazine issue, what you've described here, it seems particularly salient in an election year. You have this book coming out uh, with Tim Keller this uh, year, Uncommon Ground. Could you tell us a little bit more uh, about that book? Yeah, you know, uh, Tim and I, uh, a couple of years ago, we were chatting at a couple different meetings and realized, or I, I said to him, I think we're actually saying very similar things. For me, it was in the context of legal writing and teaching for Tim more from the pulpit at the time we were making a kind of argument for living authentically and with confidence across difference. And, uh, and I think it came out in my confident pluralism book and also in some of Tim's writings. And so we decided to collaborate together on this and pretty early on thought instead of just sharing our ideas and content in the book, we thought it would work much better to display that through narrative and through stories, uh, not just our own stories, but stories of, of friends who were also living out this idea of a confident faith across difference. And so we spent some time thinking together of how to assemble a group that reflected the diversity of uh, really the evangelical world and different vocational lanes and people who had thought deeply about these questions, who had encountered difference in their own life, who had approached that difference with, with confidence and creativity uh, and that led us to different pastors, different scholars, different artists, uh, different mm -hmm. institutional leaders. And we came up with a, a group of 12 of us and we, uh, we, we kind of gave them, gave every author an assignment to, to, to narrate through the story of their own lives, a particular role that Christians occupy. And, and so we gave Tim the role of the pastor and we gave me the role of the translator and other, other friends had 
particular roles to exemplify through their own lives. And that's the, that's kind of the frame of the book. And we're excited and hopeful that it will encourage other Christians who in their day to day, uh, whether it's at work or at home or in their neighborhoods at school who live into each of these roles themselves and, and might be able to do it with greater confidence. That sounds like a fantastic project. Well, as we draw to a close, uh, I want to ask you, what, what is it that you pray for our country? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I think, I mean, I want to pray for a kind of hope and charity, but I also maybe a humility for our country. I, I, I think one of the great dangers for Christians in our country is to well, and this is not original to me. This is something I heard from Stanley Harawas years ago, but it, it is to think of Christianity in America being more determined by America than Christianity. Mm. And so I, I, for our country, I want to, I, I want to remind me and those around me to be grateful for what we have, for the freedoms that we have. I was a, I'm a military veteran myself and, and I, you know, have, have have a appreciation for what our country is, but also then to recognize that it's it, it is a limited earthly creation that is passing away as we know, and that our ultimate hope should be rooted elsewhere, and that we that so for that reason that that our country as a whole, but all, especially Christians involved in it, should lead with a kind of humility and a recognition that uh, that the witness of the kingdom of God is not an American witness. It's a global witness that we have much to learn from those outside of our borders and uh, that we're kind of a bit player in the story of the created order and that we ought to just kind of in humility recognize and be grateful for the, the small role that we have to play. Thank you for that prayerful perspective. Our guest on today's conversation has been John Anazu, the Sally D. Danforth Distinguished Professor of Law and Religion at Washington University in St. Louis. I'm Walter Kim, and on behalf of all of us, a very special thanks to John. The National Association of Evangelicals is where we use influence for good. Today's conversation is one of many ways we connect and represent evangelical Christians in the United States. To discover more NAE topics and resources for you and your church, please follow along on Twitter at NAEvangelicals or on our Facebook page for the National Association of Evangelicals. And sign up for our email list when you visit our website at nae.net.